Welcome to Business Pants. We are Free Float. We are Matt, Ari, Jesse, Damien. Today's podcast, Business Pants Corporate Theater. Let me hand it off to our MC and get the show going. Our corporate theater players this week are the extraordinary Courtney Cook, Phil Hawk, Ashley Kutzer, and Mark McGee. Each week, the hardworking crew here at Business Pants and Free Float will rip actual business news headlines from reputable news sources and hand those very real headlines directly over to our Business Pants Corporate Theater Company, who will then dramatize and satirize the stories so that the world can finally enjoy and, yes, maybe even understand the business news. This week on the show, we have two juicy plant-based mushroom faux steak non-burger burgers on a sunny-side-up ray of sunshine. We have a CEO testing a new AI product and a special appearance from a stage and screen legend to pick three movies for the corporate world to enjoy with a 2019 bottle of Quintessa Red from Napa Valley. This is a $230 bottle, bold and structured. Uh, Wait, what? I'm sorry. These are notes from our next show. Best red wines under $240 near you in Chicago. Up first, our Business Pants Corporate Theater tackles a piece called Prosebot and the CEO, where Leonard Forbin, CEO of Stepford Tech, is testing a new AI product called Prosebot. Please enjoy. All right. This is uh, <clears throat> this is CEO Forbin, and the following recording uh, will be sent to the IT and development department. I will be testing our newest product, Prosebot, and we'll be sending those results along with my feedback. <clears throat> I've written the following uh, as a sample product press release uh, that can be changed later. Although I think this is quite sufficient. Leonard Forbin, the chief executive officer of Stepford Tech, a leading communications company located in St. Paul, Minnesota, announces today the release of a new product that will undoubtedly rival the very popular ChatGPT by OpenAI. The new product is called Prosebot, named by Forbin himself. 
Like ChatGPT, ProseBot is an artificial intelligence that has been trained and designed to hold natural conversations. The term train means that the language model was given a large amount of text from various sources in order to create its own original conversations, per se. ProseBot's text set includes over 10 million documents and over 20 billion words, much more than the current version of ChatGPT. From this, the model learns to perform natural language processing tasks and generate coherent, well-written text to be used for news summaries, product descriptions, business reports, form emails, original stories, songs, screenplays, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The applications are infinite, yada, yada, yada. Okay, so in order to test this project, I thought it would be interesting if I had ProseBot devise a biography for me or more specifically, that of a CEO of this type of company. I gave it only the most basic details about my past, where I was born, went to high school, some likes, dislikes, and so on. I have not seen the results and thought I'd record my reactions to seeing them for the first time. All right, Prosbot, here we go. Leonard Forbin was born in Roseville, Minnesota in 1967. His father was a lawyer and mother a nurse. All right, so far so good. After graduating high school, Foreman went on to earn a computer and information sciences and support services degree from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities in 1990. Well, I actually earned an MBA. I was all about business in those days. While at university, Leonard studied abroad in Essex, England as part of the university's independent foreign studies program. Well, I've never been to England. Besides, all I needed to learn was right here in the good old USA. All right, uh, let's see. Immediately after graduating, Leonard began a short career as a first responder in 1992 as an EMT and volunteer firefighter in central Minnesota. Huh, that's interesting. I I've always loved watching TV shows about first responders and firefighters growing up and with my mother being a nurse, I definitely had thoughts of becoming an EMT, but, huh, I didn't. Oh. Uh, let's see, but, but Leonard soon realized that his true calling was in the computer business world, and his home state of Minnesota, with its rich history of computer research and development, including the creation of Atlas, the first working computer by Engineering Research Associates, St. Paul in 1950, was the perfect place for him to excel. Huh, I... I didn't know that about Atlas. Atlas, huh. All right. Leonard was quickly recruited by Winsome Technology, a leading communications and technology corporation in St. Paul. Well, frankly, I, I, I never was that interested in computer science. Like I said, I, I was all about business, and my father actually set up this interview for me. He, he knew Walter Winsome in college and as a lawyer, helped him out legally, you could say, many times. Winsome returned his favor by giving me an interview, but I'm sure I was hired by Merritt alone. I'm pretty sure of it. Let's see. He served initially as executive vice president, and within a year, his executive talents earned him the title of chief technology officer, and within two years, chief executive officer. Leonard had the fastest rise up the ranks in Winsome Tech's history. 
Well, I, I came in as a junior exec, and only after I caught Winsome in the copy room with the company intern did I rise so quickly, sort of like Walter in the copy room. <laughs> he was a horny old bird, and I decided a bit of innocent blackmailing could help me up the corporate ladder. And Walter was seriously cooking the books. The company's financials were a legal nightmare, and he was buried under an avalanche of various indictments, so I anonymously sent the SEC some documents that helped expedite their case, shall we say. So, I guess my meteoric rise wasn't really about my merits either. Anyway. With uh, nearly 15 years of experience in technology, Leonard left Winsome and then created his own company specializing in artificial intelligence applications called Stepford Tech. Foreman took the name from a favorite film of his related to artificial intelligence, The Stepford Wives, from 1975. <laughs> That's funny. Like, wow. Stepford Tech was a well-regarded tech company in St. Paul that we merged with after Walter went to prison. We changed it to the Stepford name, hoping its reputation would rub off on the company, given all the controversy about Winsome's financial improprieties. I've never seen that movie, Stepford Wives. Leonard is currently a Boys and Girls Club of St. Paul board member and has been affiliated with many local organizations such as the St. Paul Zoological Society, United Way of Minnesota, and the St. Paul Fire Foundation. Shit, I didn't even know Boys and Girls Clubs were still a thing. And I hate goddamn zoos. United Way, is that like Amway? Ugh. <laughs> It would be nice to be part of the St. Paul Fire Foundation, though, but no. Leonard enjoys spending time with his wife, two children, and two dogs. Well, more like ex-wives, and I don't enjoy spending any time with any of them. This actually got the number of kids right, though, though I haven't seen my daughter in over a year now. My son still calls, but they're both grown, so, you know, I don't have time for pets. Respected as a credible voice in decision-making, an innovator in tech design and finding strategic financing, Leonard Forbin has proven to be an inspirational leader who inspires action while at the same time is grounded in financial information that leverages the business here at Stepford Tech. Jesus, corporate doublespeak. Sounds good, though. Well, I... I, I think this went pretty well. I mean, Prosebot definitely has a flair for fiction, but, you know, positive fiction. You know, why, why don't we just use this bio in all our portals? You know, no one reads those anyway, right? And Prosebot did a better job at my life than I did. So, yeah, let's substitute this on all the sites right now. And all right, I'll see everyone Monday morning. Before I get to our last sketch, let me once again thank our Business Pants Corporate Theatre. In alphabetical order, they are Courtney Cook, Philip Hawk, Ashley Kutzer, and Mark McGee. Let's end today's show with stage and screen legend Elsinore Bonneville in a segment called Elsinore Bonneville picks three movies that all of the corporate world should see right now.
Yes, Skippy. I've done many voice acting jobs in my career, so I think I know how close I should get to a mic. I was recording voices for cheap Hanna-Barbera cartoons a generation before you were even thought of being conceived, so back off, Skippy. I know your name's not Skippy, but to me, you're a Skippy. Where are my three martinis all in a row, as stated in my writer, Skippy? Rules about no alcohol in the studio, huh? When I recorded radio commercials for the Carmen Ghia, Volkswagen provided a fully stocked bar with a bartender. What? It was a car. Oh, never mind. Am I getting some movie fanfare-type music that I asked for? That happens in post, I see, so God knows what that'll sound like. Just don't make it that ridiculously stereotypical Hooray for Hollywood song. I am so sick to death of that. All right, let's get this over with. Hello, this is stage and screen legend Elsinore Barnville, and I've been asked, well, more like begged, to submit some sort of segment for this fledging little business trousers podcast. And after little or no thought, I've come up with a worthy segment for this corporate chat fest. My recommendations for the top five films that all of the corporate world should see right now. But, you know, I'm just too busy to talk about five movies, so this is what you're getting. Elsinore Barnville picks three movies that all of the corporate world should see right now. Now, I'm not here to talk about the oh-so-obvious choices for business-related films like Executive Suite, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, or The Apartment. If you're tilting your head like a confused cocker spaniel after hearing those titles, you're probably under the assumption that there were no films prior to 1990. I'm here to tell you, yes, there were, and some were pretty good. So you may want to jot these down. Do people even jot anymore? I mean, with pens and paper. I can hear those cocker heads tilting again. Oh, and just so you know, there will be spoilers. So, without further ado, let us begin. Number three in my picks for the three movies that all of the corporate world should see right now, Westworld from 1973. 20 years before Michael Crichton satirized the impending dangers of that stalwart of American commercialization, the theme park in Jurassic Park, he satirized the impending dangers of that stalwart of American commercialization, the theme park in Westworld. The film takes place in the then not too distant future of 1983 where a hyper-realistic, very adult theme park called Delos features three themed worlds. Western world, medieval world, and Roman world. Each world is occupied by lifelike androids that are programmed to mainly fulfill the violent and misogynistic fantasies of white middle-aged suburban men. Our focus is on a group of vacationers visiting the Western world, and for the first half of the film, they are all having the time of their lives as they fight, shoot, stab, and romance these poor androids to their heart's content. Then something goes wrong. A gunslinger android starts actually killing guests at the park, and then the other androids start killing guests at the park, and then they start killing the hapless scientists controlling the park, and then everything starts looking like the day after a Dom DeLuise Halloween party. 
We never truly know what caused this robot rebellion, but the warning from Crichton is very clear. AI will eventually kill us all. This recent kerfuffle about chat GPT is a prime example, and yes, I realize it. it is not technically artificial intelligence, but it's still a cold, hard machine that is replacing good old-fashioned, flawed human beings. When we start putting our trust in these soulless, ice-cold models and algorithms instead of humanity, there won't be any humanity left, no matter how enticing that sounds. I've heard some studios are entertaining the idea of using this abomination for writing scripts. Just what the movie business needs, more Wes Andersons. Number two, Mary Poppins from 1964, the American opus to everything British, starring the angelic, although she can tell the most dirty jokes, Dame Julie Andrews. Despite this being made by the uber-capitalist propaganda machine Disney Studios, there are some very radical socialistic themes peppered throughout. If there is a villain in this film, not counting Dick Van Dyke's horrendous British accent, it would most certainly be the Bank of England. The children's father, Michael Banks, works for a bank. His name is Banks which is depicted as a cold, unfeeling institution populated by stingy old white men, an accurate depiction of corporations in general then and now. After Banks chides his young son for attempting to give a tuppence to a homeless woman, he takes him to work to show him how the wheels of capitalism turn. The bank in the film could be seen as a metaphor for capitalism itself. When, due to a defiantly humorous action taken by the young banks, there is a run on the bank practically causing its collapse, one can't help but think of the fragility of the economic system beloved by the stingy white men. Then there is the suffragette wife of banks who loudly preaches the evils of a male-dominated society and demands the right to vote. She is progressive, though, up to a point— when Mr. Banks arrives home after a long day at the office, she still willingly submits to his antiquated role as Lord of the Manor. Still, for 1964, this was a somewhat daring commentary on the very real social patriarchy. Poppins herself doesn't display overtly socialist tendencies, but her overall message seems to be that one should never sacrifice one's inner child for your relationship with loved ones for the cold, hard, unimaginative behemoth of business. So there is a valuable message in this classic film. Maybe Uncle Walt wasn't the micromanaging white American dream peddling union buster we always thought. No, he was, but I believe there was a twinkling of good in his nicotine-racked body, despite not casting me in that darn cat in 1965. My dear friend Roddy McDowell got the part, and he was very good. Oh, Roddy had the best parties. His 1972 New Year's Day shindig is where I learned all about... Well, that, that has nothing to do with business, and it's really none of your business, so moving on... And finally, the number one film in Elsinar Barnville picks three movies that all of the corporate world should see right now, The Wizard of Oz from 1939. This beloved classic starring Judy Garland early in her drug-addicted career may sound like an odd choice, but that is the whole point of this bit. I think this is the perfect example of literally pulling back the curtain on the true character of corporate executives. In the film, when the true person behind the all-powerful, all-knowing Wizard of Oz is finally revealed, 
He turns out to be a befuddled, sniveling old white man who got in that position sheerly by accident. With his angry god persona and amazing special effects for 1939, he kept his terrified subjects at bay so he could hunker down in his Emerald City executive suite and not have to do really anything. Is there not a better reminder of who these titans of industry actually are? Most powerful people, let's say 99.7%, are frauds that have weaseled into their position of power. They're all just a person behind a curtain, terrified that they'll be found out. Afraid of the general public knowing that they're not as intelligent or charismatic or brave as their corporate PR departments make them out to be. They're all just like us, and it's only by luck that they're seated at the head of the board table. Never forget that and never fear them. Unless it's Michael Eisner, former head of Paramount Pictures and later Disney. We had a slight disagreement about my very small part in Flashdance, and within minutes of our argument, his eyes turned blood red, he started to make an ungodly growl, and I swear to God he levitated about a foot off the ground. I dissolved into cowardly jello and ran off the set. So what I'm saying is do not fear the corporate elite, unless it's Michael Eisner. Run the hell away from Michael Eisner. Another useful message in this Oz Technicolor fever dream is that we all have the power in us to change at any time. Never doubt yourself and don't wait for anyone to tell you how to run your life. After all that Dorothy went through to get home, Glenda, the so-called good witch, tells her that she had the power to leave all along. That clicking her heels three times nonsense. Just think if Glenda told her that at the start, we wouldn't have had to listen to three different versions of the same song. Call me cynical, but Glenda is the real wicked witch and the house should have fallen on her. Depending how I feel about the response to this segment, I may do some more. Or not. Anyway, I hope you have learned something about the intertwining tentacles of business and film. If not, then I just don't care. I'm Elsinore Barnville. Alright, and done. They don't call me one-take Elsinore for nothing, dear Skippy. No, it, it means I am a consummate professional and deliver my best in one take. Oh, never mind. I'm off to find three martinis. Please send the check to this address. It's a business card, Skippy. Volunteer? No, I was not aware of that. I only volunteer for the USO, and only if Charo is on the same bill. Whatever, just get me the hell out of here. And is it too much to assume that you'll be cutting the opening and closing banter? Ugh, more cocker tilts. Bye, Skippy! We are bored Sabermetrics, and we will be back tomorrow without this silly voice, I promise. And please, go ahead, share this podcast with your pals.